Hi, my name is Andrew Droz Palermo. I'm a cinematographer uh, from Moon Knight and The Green Knight, and this is The Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to The Go Creative Show. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we're speaking with Andrew Droz Palermo, cinematographer of Moon Knight and The Green Knight. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So at the top of the show, I was telling you that I, I just watched episode four of Moon Knight this morning, just to like refresh my brain about the episode. Uh, I know you shot episode two and four, but can largely talk about the entire series. And of course, The Green Knight just looks incredible. So there's so much to talk to you about. But before we get there, I just want to very quickly mention this episode of Go Creative Show is sponsored by Shotlister, the best shot list creation app for production in the business. Email them at gocreativeshow at shotlister.com for your free gift. So, Andrew, let's start with Moon Knight. First of all, what a great project to be part of. I mean, what a fun, how did that happen? Because I know Gregory Middleton, who we've had on the show before for The Killing, I believe, um, is the director of photography for it, shot uh, most of the episodes. You did episode two and four. How did that arrangement happen? Yeah, so um, typically with the show, um, when there are multiple directors, each director has their own DP. And so I was the DP for... Um, Aaron and Justin, who are one, a pair of directors, um, who are great um, indie directors who had their, um, this was their first really big uh, TV series. They did another series for Netflix um, just before it. But um, when they were searching for a DP, my name came up um, and I interviewed. Um, you know, I've talked about various big projects before, studio projects, or um, I've read even a couple Marvel things before. But nothing really like got me very excited, and um, those guys being at the helm, as well as Grant Curtis, who is um, one of the producers, who's um, such a great guy. Um, you know, I really like them as you know the core creative team. Um, and then you know, knowing that Oscar Isaac and Ethan Hawke were on board, um, and then another part of that is like, do I um, do I think I'll get along with Greg, the other DP, because yeah. you know we need to really collaborate and we need uh, to you know, have a meeting of minds of sort. And, um, how was, was the collaboration? Yeah. How was the collaboration? It's great. Greg is such a, uh, such a nice guy. So open. Um, you know, I've been in, I've shot a TV show before, um, called strange angel, which is directed by, um, the director of the green Knight, David Lowry. And I was in more of Greg's position, the first position, sort of setting the look, doing a lot of the hiring, you know, doing, um, sorting out gear and things like that. And, um, you know, what Greg did for me was a model, I think for me in the future, which is we sort of together create the sandbox, um, what we're going, you know, what is the world we're creating with our directors, of course. Um, and then letting me run on my episodes, you know, take my own ownership, have autonomy, of course, um, bring what I can bring to the show. Um, and with little oversight from the other team, which was great. Um, you know, we of course wanted to make sure the show looked the same episode to episode. You don't want to feel a big bump of, um, you know, the creative voices shifting. Um, and so I was mindful of that. Um, but you know, we shared gear, we shared, shared crew, um, and tried to have approximately the same approach to lighting, although every, you know, everyone is different, so different. And I would come onto a set and see how he had lit it. And I would think, oh man, I would never have lit a set like this. 
it's so interesting to see how many ways you can approach something. Um, and, and, you know, that was a really fun experience for me. I imagine you learned a lot just by kind of being, not necessarily even being in someone else's shoes, but like literally walking in and someone else had lit a scene already for you. Like it, there's, there must be some learning there. Like you had mentioned you went on set and you said, I never would have done it that way. Um, there must have been, your experience must have been filled with those moments where you just, because you're sort of working under somebody else, but also given the autonomy to do what you want, you still are kind of working with parameters that they set. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about this show is that we had very few shared sets. Um, so there was never really, I'm trying to think, only maybe once or twice was there a set that Greg set the look for and then I carried it along. So he, for instance, in episode one, sets the look for Oscar's apartment. Um, mm -hmm. And But my version of what that apartment looks like in episode two is very different because it was an entirely different time of day. We wanted it to be the very last fading light. So really, I just kind of, I took what, you know, the bones of what he had done, but my look was entirely different than his. Um, and so that was kind of interesting that that really was our only shared space. Um, and then there was maybe one other, actually, the all the scenes with Ethan Hawke and Oscar in the asylum where um, Oscar and Ethan are kind of having conversations uh, over the desk in the, in the doctor's office. And those were shared sets, which we lit together. Um, you know, we, I kind of did a design. Greg had a lot of feedback. Then we kind of had a chance to go in together one day and look at it with the camera and talk about, oh, for my episode, I really think I need to look this way and here are the reasons. It'd be great if we added a little something here. Oh, that's a great idea. You know, and it was like such a push and pull of like, he, is, he has needs for his episodes and I have needs for mine. And, um, you know, it was really fun to, to do that together. What was the camera package that you shot? We used uh, Alexa Mini, uh, Mini LF with um, Supreme Primes. Now, were you part of that decision-making or was that all Gregory? Greg had already already selected everything by the time I got on board. Yeah, and so like some various little support items I might have added here and there um, and lighting stuff here and there as well, like thing, you know, particular items that I rely on that I want to have around. Um, but the mini was already set. And then we kind of, the one thing that we had done together was when we started camera testing, which he hadn't really done, um, was creating the LUT together a little more. And, you know, he had, he had already started kicked it off, but then we found like what our contrast ratio is that we liked, or did we want to, you know, bias it a separate, a, a different color or, um, you know, a lot of that was very collaborative as well. When you start a project like Moon Knight and you're working with another director of photography who is, who kind of like set the pace, set the tone for the series, what, how was the show's, visuals described to you at the beginning you know what's interesting is there never was something that was like that where greg and muhammad his director said this is our show here's what we're doing it was more of let's all get together in a room and talk about what excites us as a team that's awesome um you know so they may have brought some images and we brought some images we talked about, I can recall, we talked about sizes of close-ups, like how close do we want to get for our close-ups? I'm very particular about that. Like I, I find the TV has a real issue of shooting too many close-ups. Um, it just is always the formula of wide, medium, tight. And, and then it ends up, the whole scene ends up being 
you know, mm-hmm. just barely above the shoulders and it's just a face and a close up. And to me, I, I need much more. I, I, I don't really like um, television's tendency to not create imagery. You know, they just capture they, it's whatever, whatever's the most, you know, expedient. What is the fastest way we can cover these pages? Let's do it. And it's not creating imagery. And that was something that we all talked about. We talked about wanting to be very um, authorial. We wanted to make sure that we were being, you know, considering every item in the frame. And it was really nice to just like understand that we were all on the same page in that respect. And that we really wanted to try to do something different with this show. Um, and then it was just kind of off to the races once they, they shot maybe for a week and a half or two weeks. And then we were, then we started shooting and then, you know, and then it kind of back and forth was that way. I would shoot, he would shoot back and forth over and over. Something I noticed in, um, Moon Knight, especially in your episodes was the use of handheld seems like it's not throughout the whole entire uh, episode, but there are quite a few scenes where you have these handheld moments and not even necessarily in action scenes. I noticed it in some dialogue scenes too. Um, mm-hmm. And I just kind of, I, I really liked the way that you incorporated handheld into the series. It was sort of in an unconventional way. And I wanted to talk about it here. Just your overall philosophy for handheld as it pertains to Moon Knight. Yeah, we talked about it early on. Um, wanting One of the early touchstones of, the, of our kind of creative conversations was Children of Men. And it's a very different show be, uh, show from that movie because Children of Men has a very clear A to B, you know, he's really going through this journey where we're getting pulled along with him. Whereas our, our show has a very different pace. It has, you know, the pace of television as well as the, the sets. Um, but, uh, you know, we've, we just kind of felt like it can get stale sometimes um, without some energy with the camera and without the camera moving, we didn't want to feel like the actors needed to just sit, you know, sit and talk. And that's again, sort of talking about the tendency of television is how often it's just two people talking in a room. And of course we have those scenes, but it was, what can we do to allow the actors to have freedom to make those dynamic, to move about the space, to sit down, then to stand up, to go over to a window, whatever it may be. And so I have in episode two, as you mentioned, a very long scene, um, which takes place in the apartment, which is five pages of dialogue, you know, and it's, and it's them. And he meets Layla for the first time, you know, they have a long conversation and then the cops enter. And that was a really fun one to do because the actors could move about the space entirely. The space was theirs. And I tried to light from above and from outside. I tried not to land any lamps on the ground so that we could do 360 the whole time. And we just needed to work out the choreography of the camera operators. Um, Justin and Aaron's philosophy on that is that even if you cut it all up and you're not using it as a moving master, that little bit of hinging that the camera can do here is as it goes from, you know, let's say pulling Oscar and then lands in an over the shoulder to to May, um, uh, to Layla. And, uh, that, you know, that little bit of energy helps the cut, helps motivate cuts, gives it some life. And it's not just suddenly, now you feel the actor move across the camera and we're in a clear lock off over the shoulder. Um, and that, and I agree with that, that, um, with that there, there does become some sacrifices for lighting when you say you've got the entire room, we're going 360 degrees and they're going to go everywhere. Um, that becomes, then you need to really consider your lighting. And, th- and it also becomes a game of dimming 
you know, a lot of live lighting, you know, I'm turning up a lamp here so that when we come over to this corner, it's backlighting them. But when I turn around, I'm dimming that light down. So I'm not shadowing them, you know, with the camera as the camera crosses them. So it's a real game of, of choreography um, between the actors, the camera operators and lighting at that point. Now, in those moments, are you giving the talent for the actors freedom to improvise their scenes or are they pretty heavily blocked and you know where they're going to go? After you see a blocking, at least in this show, we would know approximately what the shape of the scene was. You know, they're going to come in the door, have a little chat around the, uh, the threshold, move towards the bookshelf, go towards a window and back. Um, and, you know, that can, that can change. And that I wouldn't tell them necessarily. Um, it, it's certainly helpful for me if it stays within a parameter that I've set and I've seen. Um, if something for whatever reason needs to shift, it does, you know, and when I watch a blocking, if I see something that's going way off the rails for me photographically, I might encourage an actor or a director to say, Hey, wouldn't it be great if they could come over to here, if it feels right to the scene, um, you know, it's going to look so much better if I can come and look towards this window, let's say, um, and, and I've also sort of learned, and this is a very practical sort of lesson that I've learned is that when you're watching a blocking with actors and directors, and if you as the cinematographer or you as the director have a specific place you want the camera to be, you should stand there when the actors start blocking. Because mm. if you, and let's say it's me and my director, and I want to be looking towards the kitchen, I will position myself so that I am looking towards the kitchen. And the actors, I've never had an actor come into a set and say, oh, you know what, I'd actually rather be exactly where you are and push me aside. Mm. So I, you know, you just kind of, they find the space, they find their energy and they naturally will go to places which are vacant and, you know, they're not going to, and if, if the crew is all watching, I'll say, crew, will you come, will you all stand over here for me? We're all going to huddle up in this bookshelf. This is our field of view and the actors will find it naturally. And it's a little trick that, um, that I picked up a while ago and it's, it's really paid dividends as far as, um, you know, a little, a little game I play, I guess. That is so smart. I was actually going to mention when you were talking about how you approach suggesting, you know, that talent go in a certain place. I mean, it's so diplomatic, even just the way you're saying it on the show here. I imagine there must be some, some, I, I don't even know what the right word is, but there's, there's some back and forth between you, the director, the talent to kind of figure out how to nicely nudge someone to come up with the idea that you already have. <laughs> in a yeah. way. Uh, you know, there's a flip side of that, which is, we can already have a full idea, have a fully sketched out in our mind, the director and I, I we have to, I can't, I have to come equipped yeah, and have to have already pre-lit a little bit with the speed of a show like this and also the immensity of these sets. We had a great, we had an idea that we thought was great for a scene with Ethan, um, which I believe ended up in episode three, but he's talking to a, uh, a statue. He's talking to Conchu's um, statue and that's a scene that I shot. And we had an idea that he was going to sit in the corner of this set on these steps and he was going to have an intimate conversation with this thing. And Ethan came in and he was like, you know, he tried it. He really gave it his, gave it like tried to understand it from our perspective. And he was just like, guys, this is no, this isn't working for me. Yeah. This is not what this is not what this scene needs. And we, as the director and DP, we need to look at that and understand why does he feel that way? Is he right? And yeah, well, you're totally right what would you do? And then he does his thing and I'll say, okay, great. I need 45 minutes though. If we're going to accommodate this need, um, to relight, 
Um, but you're absolutely right. And the scene is a hundred percent better because of his, um, feedback on what we had thought was like, you know, you're just going to sit planted. He was like, no, I'm going to move down there. I'm going to do all this stuff. You know, an actor like Ethan, who am I to tell what he should do, um, with his body and, and, and his, his floor, his stage. Yeah, I guess, I guess it's good to have people on set that are unencumbered by the worries of an extra 45 minutes or the how the budget restrictions or whatever. Like, you need people on set that aren't thinking about those things. I mean, I know even in my own work, there's definitely been moments where I've sacrificed things that I knew would kind of be better because I'm thinking, that's going to be two hours of overtime. Like, we can't afford it. We just, like, having to think of all of those things at the same time can be kind of a problem sometimes. Like, it's nice to just be free of some of those thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, I find that you need you need to do both, um, and and in that instance, I think it's just to to put a fine point on it. That time that it took us to block it, which was considerable, it should have taken let's say twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, it ended up being an hour and a half conversation, mm-hmm. and then I needed forty five minutes to light to you know a, a huge stage. We lost a lot of time, and I still had to fit the work within the time given. You know, it's not like we could go into overtime in this instance. Um, we had very little overtime on this show. Um, and so, you know, there were some sacrifices, but it in the end made the show better. It made the scene better when I take a step back and I say, oh, you know, visually, maybe I'm going to take a hit here, but the scene's going to be better. And so you do have to kind of play that game in your mind. And I know exactly what you mean. I do that all the time. And perhaps I have a tendency to do it too much where I'll say, this is going to take too much time. I'm not going to do it. I want to, I want to have enough time to shoot. I want to get more shots. Whereas I'm trying to get better about having a little less of the pragmatic or the practical in my mind and saying that we need, if it's going to look as good as we all want it to look, I need the time. And that's, you know, and that's just the way it is, unfortunately. Um, Going, going back to our, that's a conversation. Yeah. Going back to our discussion about handheld and lighting for 360. I'm curious about the makeup of your crew in that moment. So like this dialogue scene in the apartment, like we were talking about, you mentioned having very few, sometimes no lights on the floor at all, leaving the room completely sort of lit so that you can move around. But you mentioned something about having a lot of the lighting on dimmers so that you can make adjustments along the way. Can you just dive a little bit deeper into that and sort of the makeup of your crew at this moment? I'm assuming you have uh, how many cameras? Two in the scene? Yeah, in these scenes, there were two. Yeah. And then you have your board op doing your lighting. So just kind of walk us through how that, how you would set that up to allow yourself 360 shooting, giving the talent room to breathe, and also getting the shots that you need. Yeah. Well, so uh, as I mentioned, watching the blocking, I, I will start, if I know it's a huge scene, I'll be out there with my iPad and start drawing where I think they're going to go and and try to draw a little v for where the camera should go and and, you know the camera operators also will have a lot of feedback about that when i watch them if i find that they're going into a place that i know is problematic for me but it's it's right they should be there i totally understand why they should be there i will kind of in my mind start thinking well how can i help that moment what can i do you know i look around i say oh you know i could i could actually hide something if I put a light mat, let's say, or I put a sky panel on an arm over here and we drill into the set, you know, from the ceiling, I can arm something out so that I can get a little more backlight or, or, you know, three quarter frontal, whatever it may be. And 
I'll look for those kind of dead zones and try to find ways to fill in and make those a little, a little sweeter. Um, you know, in this instance, this set was lit with a lot of lights from outside. I mean, there were hundreds of sky panels bouncing off of, um, big muslin. So there was quite a bit of soft ambience coming into the windows. That was a, I would say sort of a foundation of luminance, but you still need some key. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you kind of have to do some live dimming and what was very specific to this project, which is something which I think I'm going to continue to do despite this not being an issue always is that there was a language barrier a bit. Um, my gaffer spoke great English my key grips spoke great English, but as you go further down in their crew, the English wasn't as, um, as in, wasn't as great, you know, it just wasn't as quick. We were in Budapest. Okay. Um, and, and so with that sort of just slight bit of hesitation, if I was saying, you know, we need dim light number five down when she comes around, we need to bring up number eight, so on. I just thought I'm going to cut out some of the communication and, we had a board set by my station. So I had the irises um, for the cameras and I also had a 10 uh, dimmer switch. So I, at the top of each day, I would have them put a piece of tape on there and say, okay, this number one is the 360. Number two is the S60 from the corner number. And we would mark it all out and I would have them all on faders. Mm. So as we were watching a take, I was doing those little things um, you know, fading something out, bringing something up. And the nice thing about that also, in addition to just like cutting out some of the communication is that it caused me to have less conversations and that, oh, you know, I wished I had 10 points more on that light on the next take, or, you know, on this next take, let's do a little less on that light. I could just do it immediately. Um, and, and that I find can be really nice. And it's something that I want to continue to do just so I don't have to get on a walkie or go tell my gaffer, you know, bring a little bit more up on that light. I can just do it myself. Um, you know, of course, that's not for every show. It's when you're much more settled in and you've got a, um, you know, a cart, let's say, for yourself as the DP, um, a station. Um, but, you know, that was something that I really found incredibly helpful in this project. In episode four of Moon Knight, you have quite a bit of scenes in the desert. Um, and I'd like to talk to you about kind of the challenges or Maybe maybe it was easy. I don't know. But I'd like to just talk to you about the experience of shooting in the desert. And uh, as far as I heard from previous interviews that you've done, it was a pretty famous desert you were filming in. So it's true. Yeah. tell us about that. Yeah, so we shot in Wadi Rum, which is in Jordan. Um, you know, it's where they shot Lawrence of Arabia. Um, they shot uh, some of Star Wars. They shot Dune there most recently as well. Um, incredibly famous desert um, and gorgeous. Absolutely stunning. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was a, a wonderful experience. The crews there in Jordan are amazing. We flew a lot of our Jordan, of our Hungarian crew with us. So we had our, you know, our main crew with us, but they all had worked there recently because they all shot on Dune, which was also in Budapest and then in Jordan. Um, so that was great. So they all knew the Jordanians, they knew sort of the system. Um, and yeah, I mean, we had an incredible time and to go. That's one of the things I'll just say that I love the most about filmmaking is to get to go to places that I likely wouldn't have gone on my own. You yeah. know, when I'm thinking about a vacation, I'm not thinking about going to the Jordanian desert. Um, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's an incredible place. And I'm, I know a lot of people want to go to places like that, but for me, I really like to go, I tend to go to cities. I'm pretty Eurocentric. I'll go to, you know, wherever in Europe. Um, so that's like the thing that I love about filmmaking is I get to go to places that I never would have gone on my own. 
Had you shot in a desert before this? Yeah, I'd shot um, the TV show that I mentioned earlier, Strange Angel. We shot in um, pretty hard conditions, but just outside of uh, outside of LA. You know, you don't have to go very far to get into pretty tough conditions. I can't imagine. Um, yeah. Rocky, rocky, and sandy, and very hot. Well, what are some of the lessons that you learned on? you know, on these shoots in the desert, you know, some, somebody's listening in the audience right now, they've got a shoot coming up, considering shooting in the desert. What should they know? Is there, is there some lessons that you've learned from being in those environments? I'm sure there's yeah. challenges. Uh, a considerable amount. I mean, I think the, the, the easiest one to relay, and I knew it would be a problem when I first started shooting in deserts, but I underestimated it even then is the time it takes to shoot in the desert is insane. You know, it just something as simple as carrying a couple Pelican cases across, you know, a football field, let's say on a football field, flat, easy footing. It doesn't, it takes as long as it takes to walk, but on sand, it takes so much longer. Mm -hmm. Your footing's tough. It's just harder. And it's so hot um, that, you know, doing that is just, exhausting so by the end of the day everyone's dragging a bit um so what i try to do is you know especially in a show this large there's a lot of tents you know a lot of gear a lot of carts i try to schedule my day around never moving those if i can do that you know it's a win or if i know that i only need to do it once it's totally doable but if we need to move those carts multiple times you're gonna you're never gonna make your day so if that means that I, as a DP, need to run across just myself to go check in something on the tent, that's fine. I'll be happy to do it instead of moving everything and taking the hour that it'll take to move them, you know, just, you know, 50 meters or something. So, I mean, that's a huge one. That's probably the, probably the easiest to relay. It's just plan your day, try to hide your stuff so that when you're looking, you know, know your shots so that you know where you're looking, where things are hidden and that they're good there all day. Is there any other sort of like camera or light protection that you would need in the desert that people may not be thinking about? Just Yeah, I mean, the, the other thing is diffusion can be quite hard. Um, you don't think of deserts being really windy, but more often, at least in the, my experience, the deserts that I've been shooting in, it's really tough to have diffusion up, big frames. Um, it just becomes a challenge. Um, so I don't go in expecting to be able to have diffusion. I'd certainly condors... Um, with overhead diffusion can be really problematic. Um, and as far as cameras concerned, uh, you know, the sand, just the upkeep on the lenses, um, you know, cause if you get a couple little grains of sand into the gears of the focus motor, let's say you'll just hear that grinding and you know, that it's not, it's not going to do well at the end of the day. Um, our crew, excuse me, our camera crew was incredible really uh, did a really wonderful job taking care of everything, blowing everything off. You know, they all had air compressors to keep everything clear. Um, having plastic coating as though you were in, you know, as though it were raining is always helpful as well. Anything you can do, because even though you can't see the dust, there's tons of dust just everywhere blowing around. I guess the lesson learned here is just shoot on green screen, throw some sand on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> never. <laughs> Never. Yeah. <laughs> um, my lesson I feel in the last years is it always looks better on location. Certainly it does. does. Yeah. It certainly does. Um, also in episode four, there are some moments where you sort of lean into a Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of thing. There's a little bit of mm -hmm. Indiana Jones in there. And I wanted to talk about something that I don't think we've ever talked about on the show. And it occurred to me as I was watching this episode is filming with flashlights. Like, 
it seems so simple, and maybe it is, but I've never had experience with it, or at least relying very much on fully flash-lit scenes. Um, and I think some of our audience may be interested in that. So you know, in these moments where you are filming with what appears to be just a flashlight, how do you approach those scenes? Yeah, I mean, it takes some research in advance um, or some some testing, you know, really choosing your flashlight, what color you want it to be, the di- you know, the bulb, let's say. Um, you want to really be happy with that object. It has to make sense for the character, of course, but the color temperature of the bulb and the luminance is just as important. Um, so, you know, I really like did a lot of testing about that. I knew that I didn't want a particularly like techie looking flashlight. I wanted them to feel a little, a little more, um, rugged, not like bright led. Um, and you know, so I ended up gelling, uh, gelling the, the front of the flashlights a bit. It's really, it's really smart to have multiple flashlights. Um, not just because they die, but because maybe you want one with, some gel on it, or maybe you want one with some ND on it and you can swap them in and out and it's never a problem. Um, knowing that I wanted those scenes to feel flash lit, I started with them as my key, let's say, and I knew that I was going to need to be at 1600 ASA, um, and, you know, started with that and then knew that I would need to fill in in places or in other instances, I would need to let Oscar and May, no, hey, this scene in this part when you guys are having this long dialogue, it'd be great if, you know, we'll have a bounce board down here, down by your shins. If occasionally you, you know, hit it just so we get some luminance off for your face. And, you know, we want it to feel very dark, but you need to be conscious of the fact that you're also lighting the scene. So, um, you know, you show them those things and definitely no problem. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, the practicality of it. But, you know, you in a show like this, you also need to have a base exposure because for VFX, you can't have s- stuff go uh, where there's no information. So I needed to have a, a kind of base luminance beyond the flashlights. And my methodology typically was to light from above, super soft source, um, so that I could just eke out the tiniest bit of exposure. And then knowing that if we needed to put something in or if the whole scene needed to get a bit brighter for whatever reason, you know, they always had that ability in post-production. Let's take a quick break and talk to Zach Lipovsky. He is the founder of Shotlister, which is a fantastic shot list creation app for production. Zach, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? It's going good. Better now <laughs> that I have Shotlister, honestly. Like, it really is such a game changer in production. And there's so many features that I absolutely love. But I want, while well, we have our short time together here, I want you to just focus on one. What is what is one feature you'd like to tell our audience about? Sure. Um, well, one of the cool things that Shotlister can do is export these really beautiful PDFs of your shot list and your shooting schedule. Um, now that might seem very simple, but it can be a big game changer when you're shooting because when you export these PDFs that have, okay, we're gonna do this shot, then we're gonna do this shot, and this is how long we're gonna take, everyone just relaxes and everyone just trusts that, okay, our director has a plan. And it can really start to, you know, just build trust and that transparency with your crew. And they, you know, we actually end up on a lot of our shows sending the PDF out with the call sheet. So everyone can look through it and become really familiar with the day's plan ahead of time. And it just solves problems and ends up that just makes the day go a lot more efficiently. Um, and they just look really good. I know it's a, <laughs> sort of a silly thing, but having a nicely formatted shot list, you know, that isn't just printed off Excel, it just builds confidence. 
Absolutely. And it makes you look so slick. It makes your production look pro when you have these yeah. really well-crafted shot lists like that. It just, it, it, it's, if you guys have an experienced shot lister, please go to it and check it out. Shotlisters mobile apps are free, but there's also a macOS version and a subscription-based Shotlister Pro uh, that you guys should definitely check out. And here's the cool thing. If you email them at gocreativeshow at shotlister.com and tell them in the email whether you want Shotlister for macOS or a year of Shotlister Pro, you get that for free. So either a free shot lister for macOS or a free year of shot lister pro. And all you have to do is email them. How easy is that? Go creative show at shotlister.com. Send them an email, get your free shot lister and unlock all of the potential of your productions. Uh, Zach, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Uh, on the conversation of visual effects, we have a question from our YouTube uh, subscribers. Uh, Pius Yagenda wanted to know what the challenges were filming with so many visual effects, characters, creatures, all of that. Um, can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah, I think the biggest thing for us, the characters aren't so tough, in, in the least in this instance, because even though there were full CG characters, we had actors who would play them. So I could frame up something and know that, uh, you know, I was in a, a basic, you know, I knew I basically had the shot done. And if it was Conchu with the big beak, we had a maquette, we had a big 3D printed beak, which was exact scale. And so I could know if I was, if I was intending to get a close up of him, we could put that up there and I would, and I would know where I was meant to shoot as well as his height. You know, all that was done by visual effects so that they could speak on that with authority. But um, the thing that was most difficult in this show was the reflections, um, you know, Oscar talking to himself and, and the way that when you move a camera, when, when you're doing that, how that snowballs, you know, needing Oscar to be in both shots and we need to repeat this camera move and it needs to be exact. Um, that required a lot of, a lot of thought ahead of time. You know, I needed to know every time Oscar, had a reflection in a scene, how was I going to achieve it? And that was a conversation with the directors. Like, this is one, we can be very simple. It can be a lock-off, over-the-shoulder, shot reverse, very simple. Let's not overcomplicate it. It's just a quick little line. Other ones where, for instance, at the end of episode two, he's talking to himself in a pyramid, and there's all this cracked glass. We had to shot list and talk, and we did... We had our department make us a little a reflective pyramid on stage so we could even start doing little shots with our iPhone and understand how we were going to do all of those. Um, I think like all things, the more you plan, the easier it is on the day. You know, you can, you can react if the effects has a, a special need, you know, you can be ready for it. Um, and, you know, it's just, I think over preparing is the only way really to, to do well. Um, with filmmaking. And and that means that you may throw it all out on the day. And that is typically what happens for one reason or another. Um, but the more prepared you are, the easier it'll be. In these reflection scenes, talk to me about the distance that the talent had to be and the camera had to be. I imagine you probably couldn't be up as close as you needed to, to get an actual reflection if you were really standing there. Um, so I'm curious about the way that you kind of framed and spaced out your talent character and the reflective surface. Yeah, I mean, with a show like Marvel, and you know that they're uh, a Marvel show, you know there's going to be a considerable amount of visual effects. So if it felt right, 
for whatever reason that we really wanted to be in his eye line, we could we could have a little bit of the map box coming in there or the hand of the operator, knowing that it could get cleaned up with visual effects. Um, but it just needed to not interrupt his shoulder or, you know, to be of course in his hair or anything. There's a shot in episode two where he opens his sort of vanity mirror. Mm. And most of that it's one shot, but most of that shot, there's not an operator in it. But at one point it kind of wraps around at the end. And and when he closes it, you catch a glimpse of the operator and they just, you know, go in and erase it with a clean plate, um, you know, to save ourselves, of course, and the budget, you can't do that always. Um, you just need to be picky about when, when you're going to do that. The real calculus for me is when is the camera moving and when is it not? Can we get away with it not moving here? Can it be a lock off? Um, and if it is moving, how are we going to, how are we going to accomplish the shot? Um, and that was the, that's the real tough one. Some of those we would pick up later. I would shoot, um, there's a, a shot in episode two where Oscar puts his hand up on the bus. He rises up into frame. Mark is there in reflection and they're talking about the suit. And ultimately he transforms into Moon Knight. It's one of the trailer shots. Um, that was a shot that we shot on location on the steady cam where Oscar does put his hand on the glass, turns around, acts as though he's transforming. But the whole reflection was shot three months later um, where I recreated the lighting. Oscar's on green screen. And we had a device called a techno dolly, which taking the tracking information, which they were, they acquired on set and sent off to be processed. You plug all that into the techno dolly and it exactly recreates what the Steadicam did on that day. So, it, you know, it floats a little right, it goes a little left and then it pans off. And so then they can stitch those two shots together and then you've got a full moving shot, moving reflection shot. I mean, that's, extremely expensive, costly, time-consuming work, but there's just certain times that the camera needs to move or it becomes stale. That's so wild to me. This, I mean, I, I understand the concept of the technocrane. I understand that it's repeatable shots. It's good for visual effects, yada, yada. But when I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, now you need to recreate the scene three months later, your camera still has to start, like the starting point still has to be right. The angle still has to be right. It seems like, the the concept of it is like oh yeah you just do a repeating shot but in yeah. practice it must be there must be so many things that pop up when you're trying to three months later figure out what the reflection shot is that you wouldn't have even dreamed of when you were shooting the original plate it has it's to true. be true yeah it's true i mean one of the big one of the big assets there is a video playback assist um somebody who can pull up the original footage um and they can marry the two things that we're shooting at least in like some facsimile of what the visual effects might look like later so we have up what we'll call the a side which was the steady cam shot and now we have our b side which we're now filming on stage and they can kind of marry the two and you know oh yeah we're we're totally dead on we're exactly what we want but sometimes as you mentioned the first frame is just a little off we need oh actually we need to offset everything a foot higher for whatever reason, Oscar is lower than he was or whatever it may be. But that video assist becomes essential in, in these kinds of situations. So the tracking data is captured in your original Steadicam shot. And then you apply that tracking data to the, um, the techno cam or techno crane. What, what's techno dolly is techno -dolly. Was this tool, but you know, motion can, uh, any motion control okay. device. Um, there's many of them, but yeah. So they have witness cameras on set, you know, there'll be visual effects guys whose job it is to set DSLRs all over the set 
which can watch our camera and watch what's happening on set. And they use that information to, you know, with the metadata from the camera to then plug in and make the information for the techno dolly. In Moon Knight, our main character is suffering from severe disassociative identity disorder, for sure. And there's many scenes where both of his characters are on screen at the same time. And there's sort of scenes where, well, there's a few things. There's scenes where the characters are on in frame at the same time. There are scenes where our main character appears very normal. And then there are other scenes when he appears very crazed and, and nuts. And there's a lot in the cinematography that helps define those moments. Like there's a use of POV sometimes. There's that kind of center framing that's sort of wide and, you know, you get you get up close to it and it sort of gives you a distorted sort of feeling. Um, what were some of the techniques that you used to help support this these moments where our character was really suffering from his identity disorder? Yeah, I mean, you hit on one of them there, which is kind of the wide and tight. You know, I really utilized that a lot in episode four. And I shot a lot of those scenes with Ethan and Oscar in his office. And that's kind of when Oscar's character is kind of the furthest gone and really confused. And um, a lot of that was just like get get in his face with a wider lens than is perhaps traditional um, or even flattering. You know, it's not a beauty shot. It's about a distorted perspective or POV, as you mentioned. Um you know, one of the things that I've in sort of thinking about the show that I really thought that I would frame Stephen and Mark differently. Like I really went in, you know, in pre-production thinking, oh, well, Mark is much more powerful. He has this military background, whereas Stephen is just a gift shop employee who's way in over his head. He's in this, you know, this issue with a evil, evil guy like uh you know, um, Ethan Hawke, and he's just way in over his head. So that I should be higher. I should be a little looser with the camera movement. And with Mark, I should be more power, make him more powerful, make him, uh, his movements very considered. And I had all that in mind, but I have to admit that it kind of went out the door once we started shooting, um, only because Oscar does it all for you. Mm. And watching Oscar as Steven or watching Oscar as Mark, two very different energies his posturing, his body, the way he moves his feet, everything. And so then naturally, as one is just following the action, it happens. And it happens that his presence as Mark is much more, you know, shoulders back, more upright, um, more tactical. And, and as Stephen, he's, he's more curled in on himself and more scattered and shuffling. And so you, it just kind of happened quite naturally. And I had to do very little. And I have to say that that's one of the great things about working with actors as talented as he is. And, and I'll also just add that one of the things that I've learned over the years lately is that I don't often see what great work an actor is doing immediately. Like I can feel, Oh, that scene went really, really great. But some of the nuance and some of the things that an actor like Oscar, and I was thinking actually of Rooney Mara as well um, from a movie called a ghost story that I had shot that, you know, the littlest things that you just aren't seeing on set because you're watching on a little monitor, when you watch it on a big TV or you're seeing it projected, an actor like that is bringing so much nuance to every little moment. Um, and they can do so much with very tiny mannerisms that, um, you know, what a gift, what a gift it, has, it is to have such powerful actors. In the moments where you have both Mark and Steven on camera at the same time, um, particularly in episode four, when they're 
kind of running through the hallways of the um, of the hospital. What were some of the techniques that you used in order to, I mean, obviously I know visual effects, but what were some of the things that had to be done in order to make those scenes feel so real? Yeah, in that instance, it um, again is utilizing the techno dolly. Um, we shot that the scene that we spoke about earlier with Mark uh, in the reflection later yeah. that day. So we knew, you know, I had a, a limited amount of days I could have a techno dolly out. So it was always creative scheduling of, hey, I know I'm going to need Mark and Steven in the same frame. We want this frame to be moving. So this seems like a, a day for the techno dolly. Can we schedule this other shot on that day as well? Um, so in that instance, you know, that's a simple uh, pullback and it's just, it's basically just dollying back. Um, but you need that shot to be mathematically precise and a dolly could have done it perhaps. Um, you know, someone who was very calculated and like if they had a little stopwatch, um, the speed at which they were dollying, maybe visual effects could have made that work. But one of the things that becomes very hard about marrying two shots together is if you're seeing their feet. The feet are such a dead giveaway for if VFX is sliding someone left or right because their feet become, you know, unanchored to earth. Um, so if we had cropped them at the knees, you probably could have slid them around as needed if the frames weren't exactly precise. But we knew we wanted a full wide, seeing them cross like this, you know, um, so we used the techno dolly to repeat the move. And we had um, Oscar's brother who played um, Oscar's stand in. And also anytime Oscar was acting against Oscar, he would act actually be acting to his brother. Um, so he would be in the other position and they'd do this and then take two, they'd swap. And so they would know they could never occupy the same space, you know, and they could never cross, you know, could, couldn't pass through one another. But that was a way to keep them, you know, from from, you know, encroaching on the other space. So we have a question on Instagram from Christopher Sousa asking about if Terrence Malick was an influence in shooting Moon Knight. What do you think? Hmm. He didn't come up, although I'll just say that I'm a, a huge Malick fan and was he was huge to me as a filmmaker when I was younger. And I'm sure there's some of Malick's DNA and just the way that I see movies and the way that I see um the emotion of a camera. I mean, that was huge to me when I first saw Days of Heaven. I think I was 18 or 17. And the emotion that I got from watching that camera and the way that those scenes cut together, um, I think was, you know, really influential on me. Let's transition to The Green Knight, which is a feature film that you shot. It's an A24 film. Um, it looks just so beautiful. And I mean, really, the, the cinematography in here is is incredible. And if you guys haven't seen it, you absolutely must go and check it out. I think it's on Showtime right now. That's where I'm able to see it. Um, who knows? Yeah, I think it's be. rentable as well. The the Apple TV or Amazon or wherever you rent, I know you can rent it. Because the 4K, I'll just say the 4K HDR version looks great. I'm really oh, happy yeah. with that streaming version. You must be so happy with how this thing came out. I mean, just the pride you must have. It looks so great. And it's, and it's I mean, it seems like you had a lot of freedom to do what you know, whatever you like. Earlier in this episode, you were talking about how you wanted to get away from the constructs of shooting TV and the close-up and all that. It seems like you had so much freedom to just, just be creative and just make cinema with The Green Knight. And I mean, it must have just been such a freeing experience for you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm mean, working with David um, and now we've done a TV show and two movies. It's always that way. And um he brings so much in this, even at script level, that's very visual. It's not as though I'm 
creating everything uh, visually. And he brings so much as a director as well. And so the great night was such a feast um, for me. And uh, so much of it is told visually, which is, um, you know, one of my favorite things about the movie is I, I often find that movies, it seems as though to me, people talk too much. Like they, they say too many things. They give you so much expository stuff or they tell you how they're feeling. And I, it's my feeling that you can do so much of that with the camera. You can do so much of that with the way scenes are cut together. Um, and, and David really understands the power of that, I feel. Um, and one of the other things that I, I love about him as a director is that he knows what he wants. Um, he comes from an editorial background. He cut a lot of movies. He's a um, really great editor. He cut The Green Knight as well. Um, and he really knows when something's useful to him. And if I have an idea... I say, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this for whatever reason? It'd be really nice if we had this a shot like this for a scene. He said, oh, and I wouldn't use it. I said, okay, cool. You know, we and it's just it's that. And if if I'm really if I'm like, oh, I really want you to reconsider, I'll come back at him about it. But um, you know, more often than not, I've really doubled down on some idea, and it doesn't make the movie because he knows. But and then sometimes he'll admit, oh, you were right. That was that was the right idea. Um, but to have that collaboration, to have that deep. Um, that deep collaboration is a gift for sure. It must be great just knowing that when you're working with a director that's also cutting it, or even if they're not cutting it themselves, that just have a lot of experience cutting yeah. it. it there's just must be so, it must be just so great being on set because you know you're not going to overshoot. You're not going to waste time. It's going to be edited well. There's somebody there that has a vision beyond just that day, but actually mm -hmm. thinking down the line in post. I mean, that that has got to be something that every yeah. cinematographer wants. Yeah. And we do overshoot though. I'll just say like, we, we definitely do things, but that's just the nature of filmmaking. I feel like you have, you kind of have to, not to say that we're doing 10 setups in one scene, but more that they're just scenes that don't make the movie, you know? And that's, and it's nice to have more having directed a movie myself. I know that, um, I didn't have enough. I wish I had more. And I tried to make my script very lean just so that we could achieve it. And it ended up being too lean. It was anemic in some ways. So um, it's always better to have more, but perhaps more scenes than more shots, I feel. Um, but yeah. In The Green Knight, you had mentioned in um, just research that I was doing before this interview, you had mentioned two things about it that I thought were really interesting. And one was that you kind of had a different style of cinematography. It was more kind of classical, more formal, a very composed composition. And this idea of things being center punched, which... I love the look of that. I love the feel of that. There is something kind of, I don't know, there's something kind of odd maybe or alluring for me, but there's something sort of strange about when you have um, shots that are so heavily composed. It almost feels like there's music video elements to it in a way. Um, I love that. And I think it lends to your liking of wide shots and things like, you know, stuff like that mm. that just sort of, all of those things are implemented so well in The Green Knight, and I'd love to hear your just philosophy of how you ended up with this classical style and the punched uh, center framing and these compositions. How did you get there, and why was that appropriate for this particular story? Yeah, I think for me, it was sort of the time period in which the story takes place. I knew my lighting was going to be um, a bit more expressive. I, I, I would I would do things which were accurate to the time, which maybe the daylight is really the only source, you know, except for some candles. Um, and, but I knew I could go to some magical places as well because of the content, you know, it's a, it's a, it is an effect of a fairy tale of sorts. Um, 
But for me, the kind of the compositional work that I was doing, I was thinking a lot of Christian imagery and iconography and kind of like illuminated manuscripts or, um, you know, just drawings of icons, drawings of Jesus or of Mary. And so many of them are so very formal, so very posed. They're not natural. There's nothing natural about many. I mean, there are, of course, things which are, but the large majority of this artwork is not particularly natural. Um, and I kind of was just kind of working in that vein and thinking about this artwork. And, um, you know, I, as is always my my um, method is I just kind of absorb, absorb, absorb. And then at some point when we start shooting, it all just kind of comes back out. And it's whatever is interesting to me, whatever is feeling right. Um, you know, am I being too precious in this moment or is this a moment where I can be really formal? Um, or is this a moment that needs to be a bit more natural? Like there's a scene with King Arthur and Dev, um, in Dev's house. Um, and it's much more natural. It's not as center punch. It's not as like every frame, a painting kind of situation. I'll just say that I, you know, it makes me slightly in the spotlight and uncomfortable. And, um, when the photography is such a character, Mm. because I don't want to be thought of by an average audience member. I don't want people to think about, oh, this photographer is really going, you know, crazy on this one. Um, I want them to just be engaged. I want them to be, you know, sucked in or taken into a journey or, you know, have a moment of escape. So, you know, I think it's a slippery slope um, when you get too precious with your imagery. And I and I would say that we, in times, went too far in the Green Knight, perhaps. And um, you know, where do you think it went too far? Oh, I can't think of any specific instances, but. where could I think of actually? Um, yeah, I can't really think of any specific instances, but it's more of just like the overall feeling like, mm-hmm. um, or, or I'll just say even practically, like we thought this would be one scene we thought would be a wonder and it just kind of was going south and we sure would have uh, benefited from a couple more angles. Um, you know, this, I don't, don't even have to be particularly specific, but that's kind of, um, uh, you know, that's something that can happen. Um, this next movie that we're talking about though, is a much more natural movie in some respects, but there's also a bit of theatricality. So I already know in my mind that I'm thinking like in this movie, I'm going to work a bit more angularly. I'm not going to be as center punched. There may be flourishes of this kind of, um, photography again, but I want to live in a more real world to help the story. So it always comes from the script. Um, and it comes from the world and whether or not the world can hold that and can sustain that, um, that you're building. And, um, that's kind of, kind of how the green Knight went, I guess. What was the camera package for green Knight? We used the uh, Lexus 65 with, um, airy DNA lenses. Um, we had a couple of Tukinas in there as well to cover on the wider side. Um, there's some stuff in the green chapel later on that I'm on a 16 Tukina on the Lexus 65, which is, you know, like, just so wide you wouldn't believe how wide that is when when you it's you know almost 180 degree field of view it's incredibly wide people are loving those dna lenses i'm i mean we've had people come on the show the amazing skin tones the ability to custom tune them like there's there's so many things about those dna lenses people are losing their mind over so i imagine you did a bunch of testing and just couldn't resist yeah, they were, you know, when I shot this movie, there weren't a lot of options which covered the Alexa 65 at that moment um, that were sets, which, you know, was for me, it's it's important when you're on a feature film 
that the the lens size is relatively uniform, the f-stops uniform, um, that the weight of them is relatively uniform because it, you know at day thirty or whatever, it's just too many variables. There's too many different camera modes, yeah. um, all these things. So that was kind of like the parameters within within I needed to work, and they just fit perfectly into that. I saw some absolutely gorgeous glass, like old Hasselblad glass, which had been rehoused. Um, some incredible Panavision glass, but it was like, yeah, the 28s of F4 and the 50s at one. And it just becomes, it's too hard when you need, you know, you need two sets of lenses. You need um, to think about all these different camera modes. And so the the fact that these were still had character like vintage glass, um, but were uniform and had all the mechanics of, of modern lens, uh, modern lens, it was, you know, really great for me. We really appreciate you coming on and talking about both of these projects. I mean, we could do a whole episode about Green Knight, but what are you going to do? It's only an hour-long interview. But I'm, I feel like we covered <laughs> we covered a lot of our bases. Uh, but honestly, best thing to do, just if you guys are listening and you want to see more, go out there and watch these shows. Watch the shows. We'll put links to everything we talked about in the show notes for sure. But Andrew, really, really great talking with you. Um, you're great on the air. Really good at explaining all of these things. Oh, That's great. a talent uh, in and of itself. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to add one thing, if I may. Please do. Um, which was this, you know, I feel like uh, often conversations like this end up very technical. Yeah. And, um, and and that can be very helpful for a lot of people in very specific ways. But I just want, for anyone who's listening, I want, or watching, I want you to not get too caught up in the technical. I want you to utilize the tools which are available to you in this moment. And I want you to not say, oh, if I could just shoot on the Alexa 65, I know I could make a great movie. That's not how I started. I started on a 5D Mark II shooting my own stuff. I shot on whatever camera was available to me and, and learning that equipment and utilizing it and pushing it to its absolute limit is, uh, I think, some of the best photography that, you know, I, I love people that can use an iPhone super well. Like, just free yourself from the technical aspects um, or don't let that stop you from making stuff. Great advice. I love it. Andrew Droz Palermo, thank you so much for being on Go Creative Show. Thank you, man. All right. Andrew Droz Palermo, cinematographer of Moon Knight and The Green Knight and so many other things, of course. So check him out on IMDb as well as his Instagram. And we'll put a link to all of those things in the show notes. I want to thank Connor Crosby from Ignition Visuals. He produces the show. And Dave Siegel from Siegel Sound mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. So thank you guys for pulling it all together. We're also lucky to have Shotlister as a sponsor of Go Creative Show. We love those guys. Shotlister is the best shot listing application for production, hands down. There's just, that's it. That, that's what it is. And uh, if you email them at gocreativeshow at shotlister.com, you can get a free one-year subscription to Shotlister Pro. So please take advantage of that. Of course, follow Go Creative Show on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, where we put exclusive content like show shorts, which are just little itty-bitty bits from each episode that are just shareable and fun and just stuff that we think is really great insights from particular episodes. And obviously, 
If you're only listening to the episodes, yeah, you get all the content, but you're sort of missing something without seeing it, without really seeing the expressions and seeing the faces of these guests. So please do head over to our YouTube page, subscribe to us there, hit the notification bell so you never, never miss an episode. Of course, all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to follow me, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ben Consoli, B-E-N-C-O-N-S-O-L-I. Thank you guys for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of The Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Oh,